We are Community Radio, Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Welcome to another Kilkenny Today, Morris O'Connor with you as usual here on the, the show. Fáilte Rov Galair, good deed, Clar Ella, Kilkenny in you. It's great to have you with us one way or the other. And delighted to be back as well in the, in the saddle for today's show. Now, um, just thinking about it, it there, there seems to be a week uh, commemorating or marking something nearly every single week of the year. Um, Last week, or I don't know, um, well, last week, certainly the last couple of weeks, as true Irish form, we had Shakhtan Nagelga, Nilisigam, Gwilamid, or Nwilamid, Imask, Shakhtan Nagelga, Fos. I don't know, are we still in the middle of Shakhtan Nagelga or on Wilshire Krikna? Is, is it finished? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think maybe it finished on St. Patrick's Day last Wednesday, but anyway, one way or the other. Um, this week, there are two sort of commemorating or marking weeks uh, going on at the moment. Uh, it's National Tree Week, and in that regard, we'll be hearing from Pat Neville, who's the communications manager with Quilche, um, towards the end of the show. Um, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland also have a week underway for, called to donate for Dementia Week, and um, Pat McLaughlin, who's the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, will be joining us um, towards the middle of the show to have a chat about what's going on in the, the world of the Alzheimer's Society and in services for people with uh, dementia and indeed what's happening with uh, Donate for Dementia Week. Uh, we don't uh, probably don't have to tell you any more for the moment anyway. We don't have any parish news for you, but of course we will bring that back to you as soon as there's anything to uh, to report on from the various parishes around the city of the different church denominations. A uh, couple of ad breaks, of course, to pay the bills as per usual. And I suppose without further ado, we should uh, get on with uh, today's show. And my first guest on today's show, I'm delighted to welcome Suzanne Rogers, who's a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. So good afternoon, or sorry, hello, Suzanne, how are you? Hi, Morris, thanks very much for having us. You're very, very welcome. I shouldn't be saying good afternoon because this show repeats, so it could be good morning if uh, people <laughs> listen to us on the Wednesday morning. But anyway, one way or the other. Um, I think the last uh, guest we, we, I had from Social Justice Ireland uh, was on early in February, Suzanne, I, and we were t- I was talking to your colleague Colette Bennett about something v- very esoteric, robots on the labour markets. and. Y- um, well, not so esoteric, but universal basic income, but the robot side of it certainly was. Um, this time, though, you've just, as of today, I think, um, or very recently, launched your annual socio-economic review. And uh, from looking even just at the table of contents and the press release going with it, it covers a huge wide range of um, socio-economic issues. You might, you might just give us a very brief run-through, maybe. It, yeah, you're right. It will be difficult to give a brief run through. It's 400 pages of oh of everything: education, transport, health, 
walk, the the nature of walk housing, um, libraries, migration. What we try and do is look at these situations as they currently are. Everything we do is based on, you know, it's evidence-based research. We look at the numbers, we look at trends. And what we're trying to do, I suppose, is put forward proposals for what we see a more equitable, fairer Ireland, a future for everybody. You know, choices are made at political levels, choices are made at local levels about how resources are allocated. So in a lot of our chapters, we'll have maybe, we'll pick maybe five or six key policy issues in something like housing or health, and we will put forward five or six policy proposals to match those. So there is, as you said, there's there's an enormous amount of, of detail in it. But it is, we see it as being very, very valuable work as well as, you know, being able to hold up a mirror and say, well, this is actually where we are. Yeah. You know, is it working? Yeah. Is it not? Can we change it? If we can, this is how we think we can change it. So it's a kind of, um, would it be fair to call it a kind of a, an, an annual state of the nation um, review from the perspective of Social Justice Ireland? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is from our perspective, but it is, you know, the, the numbers are there, you know, the, the, we're not putting any kind of spin on it, I suppose. You know, it is, it's, it's trying to put a fee very straight down the middle. This is evidence-based research. But yes, it does. It reflects the concerns of social justice Ireland. That would be, I think that would be correct in saying that, yes, yeah. We might, I suppose, um, albeit, as you say, it's 400 pages and there's a huge yeah. amount in it. Um, you can tell us before I leave you um, in a short while um, how any interested listeners might be able to access the review if they'd like to read either some or all of it. But just mm-hmm. dipping into some of the subject areas, for example, I know there's, you have some, some part of it that addresses um, labour market challenges and particularly things like low pay, underemployment and the employment impacts of COVID-19. So what, what is it that Social Justice Ireland has to say in that area, for example? We would advocate for a living wage that work needs to pay. It, you know, there's no point in sort of saying, well, there's, there's lots of jobs out there if you need to have three jobs in order to be able to pay your basic bills. We would also be huge advocates of recognising the value that work doesn't necessarily mean paid employment as well so we were big 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 advocates of recognizing a lot of the unpaid work that goes on in the country and especially now the pandemic has really exposed the the level of caring work that's gone in the community and the amount of low paid and for the gig economy jobs that are out there when you look at the the tax take for the year 2020 so it hasn't dipped at all do you know what i mean so Mm. it does mean that a lot of people who who were affected by the pandemic and their job getting the pub payment were probably paying very low levels of tax already Mm -hmm. so we are are calling for you know good jobs living wage, a wage that can put food on the table, roof over the head. We are looking, I suppose, as well in terms of transitioning for skills. I mean, you think back to the crash and construction got hammered in the last crash and you had, I mean, my, my own father was in construction for his entire life. Like if he had been let go, made redundant at the age of 62 or 63 from construction, what did he do then? You know, so as the nature of work changes, we need to be matching that with skills. We need to be retraining. We need to be looking at upgrading and changing our skill sets to meet whatever's coming down the line as well. Mm-hmm. Digital literacy would be a big part of that. Um, yeah. 
I, I could go I could go on, but yeah, I might I stop there. Yeah, um, like I, I get the impression from certainly for the younger generation anyway, whatever you just regard those as being, that. Um, you know, the, the what's called the gig economy is very, very firmly here. And like there may not, in principle, and I think you mentioned it earlier on about like, uh, multiple jobs, you know, paying, paying appropriate and fair amounts, like uh, having a number of different jobs in itself may not be um, too challenging in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, but it's, it's the rate of pay for those jobs. And then I suppose, one of, I, I presume one of the things you'd be very much against, and maybe, I don't know, you're campaigning to abolish the, the whole idea of zero hours contracts. I, I said, yeah, it, it is. Apologies, uh, I, mean, I don't know whether that came from this end or that end there, sorry. Um, the, yeah, I mean, it's about making work pay. It's about, you know, I mean, if, if you read any sort of government documentation on, on the alleviation of poverty, employment is the answer. You know, it's all about creating jobs, it's all about moving people from unemployment to employment but that needs to that needs to work out. For some people a zero hour contract is, is fine, you know what I mean? If, if it's maybe you know, if you're a student who's being supported at home um, if you're if there's already maybe one or two incomes already in a home, a, a zero hour contract might, might suit, you know so it's, it's more about making sure that it isn't people's only choice you know, that sort of a way that that there are solid um, workers' rights out there that mean that you have choices. So if, if a zero-hour contract doesn't suit you, that it isn't the only thing that's out there for you. Yes, it's about choice and getting paid at a rate that allows you to have some choices really around, around your life. Um, I suppose one aspect of those choices, um, which some people have and other people don't have, as everybody knows in Ireland, is around housing, which you mentioned earlier on. And I think part of the review as well addresses the issue of, of um, affordable or what is or what should be affordable and appropriate accommodation, um, again, from, from your own perspective. What is it that you are suggesting in that area? Definitely an increase in social housing building. We have abdicated i suppose we've, we've moved our social housing provision out into the private market so people who are in need of social housing that is now provided by the private market so you're in receipt of housing assistance payments so you're, you're, you're renting from a private landlord and we've seen what that has caused you know that the housing figures over the, the homelessness figures over the last 10 15 years are really as a direct result of very little social housing and an over-reliance on the private market, which will never deliver on a public good. We would advocate that um, at no stage ever would public land, land that's in a local authority's ownership, that that would never be sold for private development for yeah. somebody else to um, make a profit on. So, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd be advocating then for all the state or social housing being provided by the state to be built on, on state lands. Do you think, or do you have any comments in the review on... Um, the land development agency's um, role in that and how effective that could or might be or does it need to be reshaped? Yeah, it, I mean, even if you look at sort of the affordable housing scheme, um, I mean, you know, what people sort of saying things like, well, you know, somebody only has to borrow 260,000 or their mortgage will be just 260,000. I mean, I don't know when that became affordable. You know, if you're on 27,500 and your partner's on 35,000, 260,000 isn't affordable, you know, and that's maybe coming from a house that's retailing at 400,000, you know, so 
there's you know, we, we made the mistake, I suppose, with the shared ownership schemes before. We don't seem to be learning from it. I mean, the Land Development Agency is only really, that's still at the infancy stage. So it does need to be, we do need to watch it. We do need to keep an eye on it. But I suppose it's, it's our language as well, I've noticed, you know, that we are saying that a house for full 100,000 can be affordable for, for those on an average wage. And I'm at a loss, to be honest with you, as to how that can happen. You'd be, you'd be right there. There'd be a lot of people agreeing with you there. Um, do, do you have anything, Suzanne, to say in the, on the whole area of, you know, that that's like affordable housing for, for, for buying, whether it's affordable or not, is a big that big debate, right? But what about the, the rental sector and maybe the things that um, many people who, who would be struggling economically have to engage with and that the, the particular the kind of HAP and ROS schemes, are those, are they in need of, change or abolition or reconfiguring or rebalancing in favour of, of tenants and away from landlords or do, do Social Justice Ireland have a view there? I mean rent supplement was, was introduced to fill a specific need and a long time ago and that need has just evolved so so much, do you know what I mean? That people who are now in receipt of HAP and RAS would traditionally have been allocated a council house or a, a you know a corporation house, so it, it I think it it, it just it, it it isn't it does it no longer meets the needs of of those people who are honest you know that sort of a way. I mean rent. I mean you can see now from say 2020 where despite this exodus of people from the cities, Dublin rent didn't fall at all despite the, the you know um, vacancies roles with the Airbnb situation, you know, the short terms being moved to long term less. A lot of people who were renting to be close to office buildings were able to sort of were able to sort of move home to move back to more rural locations and rent because all they needed was a laptop and a bit of Wi Fi. Rents never dropped in Dublin, whereas rents in the rest of the country actually increased last year because of this move back out from, from cities. So it hasn't you know, rent really didn't, the situation got worse last year. And I just read something there a couple of days ago where if you're paying more than 30% of your income on your accommodation costs, that has a direct impact on your mental health. Just the stress of that. Do you know what I mean? So you're working, you're pay, paying your rent, you're minding yourself, you're paying all your bills, but just the fact that it takes up such a large proportion of your income has a direct impact on your mental health. I just thought that was really interesting and very depressing. Yeah, yeah. and of course your, your review, uh, as, as wide-ranging as it is, also does touch on, uh, certainly on the resourcing side of the, the health services and thoughts you have in that area as well, whether it be mental health or other general health services. I presume you'd be advocating for um, resource to be provided and for the, the ideas or the principles of Slauncha Care really to be embedded in and rolled out. Yes, I mean, we're huge advocates for, for Sancho Care to actually be fully implemented. I mean, you can't have a conversation really about health though, without touching on where we are. I mean, money was found for the health service in the last year. Money was found to support um, all of the extra medical costs that were incurred as part of the pandemic. So where there's a will there is a way so in terms of allocation of resources what we would like to see i suppose is that you know we can now build upon that learn from what's happened to us all in the last year and you know as, as 
Father Sean Healy said only earlier on, really and truly only the government could have been able to put in place all of the mechanisms and all of the support that we saw put in place. And a lot of them were put in place very, very quickly. Very, very quickly over the last year. So it does show that, um, that you know, that there is, there, you know, that there, that there, there is capacity there. But it, it's all linked, though. I mean, you know, in, in, if, if a hospital is saying it has a shortage of nurses and doctors, that's a direct link then to not being able to find affordable housing. So if you're a nurse on a relatively, you know, middle income or low income and you can't afford to rent, that means you're not going to work in Beaumont or the matter. You're going to, you know, you're going to work somewhere else. But they are all connected really as well. I mean, that leads me on really neatly. I think we, we could have probably a, a long conversation, Suzanne, about every single topic and every chapter heading really in your uh, the, yeah. the Social Justice Ireland uh, annual review um, as, as published, uh, just read, just published. Um, and it, I suppose the fact that it's such a holistic publication is kind of underlined maybe and highlighted even by, by the fact that you include um, the sustainability and climate tar targets in, in all of that and how to address those. Unfortunately, we don't have time to, to go into all this in, in as much depth as we might um, like to, Suzanne. But look, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. But just before I do leave you, um, if your listeners are interested in accessing the, uh, the Social Justice Ireland Review, which is called Guide to a Fairer Irish Society, how can they do that? on our website which is quite simply socialjustice.ie it will be there on the main page and again they can dip in and out of it if, if housing is your bag you just go into the housing chapter or begin at the beginning and end at the end but there is I think that there's something there for everybody anybody who's interested in social justice or how to build a fairer future will find something in there Great. Look, well, congratulations to yourself and your colleagues that are all involved in, in putting together that well. annual review. And as I said, there's probably a huge amount of source of uh, plenty of discussion material in that. And uh, hopefully it does get, get a wide audience and uh, a lot of the ideas do get taken on board. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne. Thanks for your time, Maurice. You're very, very welcome. Uh, and that was Suzanne Rogers, who's a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. And as she mentioned, uh, socialjustice.ie is their website where you can get hold of, if you're interested in the Social Justice Ireland uh, annual review, Social Justice Matters 2021 Guide to a Fairer Ireland, you can get it on that website. Uh, we better take an ad break now and move on with the show. But um, after we come back after the break, we'll be joined by Pat McLaughlin, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. So do stay with us here on Community Radio Kilkenny City, Kilkenny today with myself, Morris O'Connor and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes time after these We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM Is your weekday mornings getting you down? Do you suffer from the midweek slump? Well, why not join me, Gerard Donovan, for Wednesday's Good Morning Kilkenny, where between 10 and 12, I'll be playing a magical musical jukebox of the best in music. Tune in, and together we will make the midweek slump a thing of the past. Warning, this show may involve sound effects, like animals that sound like Peter Griffin from Family Guy. <laughs> this show will not affect your credit rating. You're listening to Kilkenny Today with Morris O'Connor on Community Radio Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Indeed you are, and Falcha Roy Varash, uh, it's good to be back with you again, glad to have you with us. Uh, 086-353-7782, of course, uh, the text line, and uh, if you do 
Felix, would you like to text in with your best? I'm up here in the radio station, not in the radio station, in the Raidstown studio, the so-called, or self-titled for me anyway, Raidstown studio. And uh, Declan Gibbons is very kindly driving the sound desk for me today. So Declan, if you do get uh, text messages in, we'll, we'll try to get them uh, through to me anyway, as best we can. So if you just bear with us, if that doesn't happen immediately, you don't get an immediate response to your text. And indeed, if you're listening on the Wednesday morning repeat, good morning to you and um, you're excused from texting because we won't be able to answer you. Anyway, I'm delighted to be joined on the line now by, uh, I believe, Kilkenny resident Pat McLaughlin, who's uh, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Good afternoon, Erg. How are you, um, Pat? Well, good Hello, Morris. How are you? I didn't realise you were a Kilkenny resident. Does that go all the way back to your days as um, uh, Chief Executive of a former Southeastern um, Health Board? That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I came to Kilkenny with my family in 1989. All right, you're you're here an awful lot longer than I am. Do they have they stopped um, calling you a blow-in by now? <laughs> no, well, no, maybe not. That's very very happy here. Well, likewise, likewise, I have to say. So I'm glad if yeah, coming on 16 years here, I'm delighted, still delighted to be here. Um, it's in in mid-January, Fergus or Pat, we had a colleague of yours, Fergus Timmins, on uh, from the Alzheimer Society, talking to us about social robotics. Now we'll stick to something a bit more. Uh, down to earth and brass tacks uh, for today. You you have a week, uh, a promotional week going on this week called Donate for Dementia, and I suppose you're you're trying to presumably highlight issues around uh, dementia and maybe services or supports uh, for people affected by dementia. So tell us where, where did the idea for Donate for Dementia come on uh, come from, and have I got it right in terms of what you're trying to do? Yeah, Boris. It really started when we were uh, discussing. Uh, the film Finding Jack Charlton and it was planned to have a, a launch of that uh, before COVID and we teamed up with Virgin Media Television now for a special donate for Dementia Week of activity and the purpose of it is really to raise awareness of dementia and uh, Alzheimer's and all the different forms of dementia and also to help raise some funds uh, for us we need to raise about 3.5 million each year to balance the monies which we get from the HSE. So that, that's the purpose of it, and I'd have to say it's going extremely well. We had a very good day yesterday, and donations are at about 30,000 already. Yeah, I think no more than um, yourselves, I think almost every charity in the country is probably having to very quickly switch from traditional fundraising models to doing it all online. I presume that's been your experience as well in the last year. It has, and we, we relied heavily on face-to-face events, or T-Day would have been a very big uh, money spinner for us. We would have probably got in about 600000 for that, and, uh, you know, while we did it online, we only would have received, I suppose, about 18% of that. So uh, there's no doubt that the change from face-to-face opportunities has meant big change, but nevertheless, I always have to say the public have been very generous to us in 2020, and we had a good year, but... You're always worried about the next year because once that year is over, you have to try and raise 3.5 million again for the following year. Yeah, which is a big, huge challenge, all right, the, the idea of having to kind of start from scratch uh, year in, year out. I'm sure there's, again, that's something that uh, many, many charities around the, the country are struggling with. I think, or I gather from the press release, um, Pat, that uh, as part of this week as well, you're kind of getting in very early um, with with uh, kind of canvassing thoughts and opinions uh, and stories from people affected by dementia to kind of feed into a submission to the government for budget 2022. You're you're very early with that. We are, but I have to say the government uh, 
very good to us uh, for the last budget and this was the first real meaningful uh, increase in allocation for dementia and there was about 13 million uh, made available and, and thanks to Minister Mary Butler who was very good for us but we want to keep that going because there has been a crisis in dementia care. Yeah, how, like what, what, what typical way have you been hearing from um, people that you've been providing services traditionally pre-COVID? Like, how, how have they been typically impacted by uh, by COVID? I mean, they're like the the lockdown and everything is stressful enough for for all of us in general terms in lots of different ways. Um, are there particular issues that then the like that gives rise to for dementia? Yeah, I suppose the biggest. Biggest problem, Morris, was I suppose that about 1,100 uh, people were attending our day centres up to about 47, 48 day centres in the country, and they are closed now a full year, and we wouldn't have imagined that uh, would have happened. So we've carried out research right uh, uh, during that uh, pandemic, and you know, 77% of family carers are agreeing that their caseload has increased. They're feeling stressed. And I suppose the fact that there is no timeline to open services has meant that it's very difficult for them. Now, we have put in a lot of different services. We do make calls to people. We've up to about 27,000 calls made at this stage to people who are attending our services. We've made our dementia advisor service online. We've made family care training online. But there's no, there's no substitute, really, for some of these face-to-face services because that's where people got the stimulation. And I think more importantly, when the person themselves who were living with dementia was in a daycare centre, well, it was a great break for the care. Yeah, and there there has been some coverage in national media anyway uh, t- today and yesterday, the day before, around plans, uh, the HSE's plans for resumption of uh, general medical services um, from now on throughout the rest of this year. Um, was there anything, any good news or anything specific in that that you, you could uh, point to as being beneficial to people who are either affected by dementia themselves or their carers? Well, certainly the waiting lists uh, for uh, neurology uh, services have lengthened. Uh, 61% of people the last time we surveyed us had actually not been able to make an appointment. The appointment had been cancelled. So I suspect with all groups there's a a big um, demand that's there, a latent demand, and many carers have a lot of comorbidities, you know, the two or more conditions themselves. So we expect that a lot of people will benefit if the services are opened up, and we would hope that that would happen. But we would also hope that the services that we're providing, like day services, are opened up and that we're allowed to take people back, even with social distancing norms, and that we would be able to get back into providing daycare. Yeah, how much of a heads up would you need from the HSE to to when 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 whenever the time comes when they they will presumably give you the go ahead to reopen those um, day services because you, you know it's presumed it's not something you can just switch on overnight again. It's not, but we have been doing work on the uh, services and on the buildings, and some of them we will have to move to new buildings, and some we will have to just make adjustments for, and we're spending that money at present on the basis that they will reopen and I suppose that's one of the reasons that we're anxious to try and get as much resource in at this point of the year so that we can we can continue that programme but it will be different in different parts of the country. Many of the centres were small and uh, we might have you know 12 to 20 people there. We won't be able to get that number of people there now so it will be a smaller number of people 
or we would have to get bigger premises. So we did make a submission and I did meet the minister about it, but uh, his initial reaction has been, well, to uh, get get the quotation, see what's needed and come back in. But uh, we're, we're going ahead uh, to try and ensure that the time lapse will be very, very short, that if we get to go ahead from the HSE to reopen, that will be only a matter of weeks and we'd be, we'd be up and running again for a set number of people. We're staying in contact with all of the persons who were attending, but, you know, unfortunately, 28% of that group of people have either gone into long-term care or passed away. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then as we're given dementia and the nature of dementia, people's own, um, certainly people living with dementia, their their own personal conditions will have moved on and could have moved on, I presume, quite significantly in, in the space of time, certainly over the last, essentially, year since things have been effectively locked down, I suppose, from your perspective. Um, and that, that's a year they're not, they're never going to get back. Yeah, and uh, carers are saying that they're seeing people becoming more withdrawn and uh, disinterested and that it's very difficult uh, for them to watch that. So we don't have comparatory data on it for other years, but uh, there's no doubt people have said to us that because of the lack of supports and break that they've had to resort to fair deal, as it's called, and that uh, they've had to allow their loved one into nursing homes. That's not something they wanted to do. Uh, but I think it's the inevitable outcome if we don't have the sort of supports in the community to help carers. Yeah, and indeed, like that's very de- so dependent as well on the availability of nursing home places. You know, which isn't there isn't an infinite supply of those either. So it, it's um, it's not a very difficult situation. I can well imagine. Um, just before Pat, we before we get back to the donate for dementia week and what's happening um, and uh, the features uh, around dementia on Virgin Media TV. Um, what's the status of research at the moment into into kind of causes, triggers, and potential treatments or, or possible future cures for dementia right, right at the moment? Is, is progress being made? Well, there isn't any cure uh, as such, and that's obviously uh, a problem. Uh, but uh, the best information that we have, and the most research would, would would point out that actually, if you do live well and that you are active and good diet and uh, avoid smoking and alcohol and excess but it can uh, reduce the, the incidence of dementia by maybe about a third so that's, that's something which is really really important and an important message for people uh, you know in their in their uh, middle years and indeed it's important for everybody to try and, and uh, stay active so there, there is research going on and there's a number of new drugs being tried I suppose the best advice I've got from any of the clinicians on this is that they're cautiously optimistic, but there's certainly no game changer in relation to a cure at this point in time or vaccination or anything like that. There has been a lot of research into uh, the causes, and I suppose we can see that if all of that research was done over a very defined period and that government would prepare to fund it, you can see what can happen in relation to COVID that over a very short period of time that uh, you know a vaccination program can be can be brought to to market, and the figures are very difficult for dementia. With sixty four thousand people at the moment, it's estimated in Ireland there will be about fourteen hundred in in Kilkenny County, but that's expected to go to one hundred and fifty thousand within about twenty five years. So you can see the the growth that's expected uh, in dementia in Ireland, and it'll be a very very serious issue for Irish society. If we don't either reduce the amount or put in the actual services to support people and and uh, carers in that regard, indeed, I suppose if those figures are replicated um, elsewhere and possibly in the developed world, uh, where people are expected to live or have a, 
hopes to live longer. Um, it would add a huge amount of impetus towards uh, around research for for anything that might, um, at minimum, uh, enable you know modified disease modifying therapies that might even enable uh, the progress of dementia to be halted, whatever about reversed or, or cured. And people who are living with dementia have been very unselfish in that regard. Many of the the people who are working with us in our working group, they actually are making themselves available for any research and they're active in it and, and, and they know that you know it probably won't be of any benefit to them in their lifetime but they're doing it you know for for the next uh, next generation of, of people so it's very unselfish of them and uh, they're working with research companies etc but uh, there's no no big uh, no big break to them i'm afraid morris well, I suppose we just keep our fingers crossed that something will come along in, in due course. There's probably plenty of uh, really, really top-grade scientists working on it. Uh, just back to uh, Donate for Dementia this week, um, Pat, and uh, I believe there's various features on different uh, shows on uh, Virgin Media TV. Um, uh, the, the the culmination, or I don't know what you call it, the highlight is, is uh, you mentioned the Finding Jack Charlton documentary, which I think is going to be uh, shown on Saturday, and of course that's uh, that'll I, I reckon that'll attract a huge audience given the the popularity of Jack Charlton here in the country and um, the kind of the sadness of of the of his the onset and the prog- progress of his uh, his own personal dementia. Yeah, that's, that's um, it, it's a full nice. Um, there's a documentary which is called "We Need to Talk About Dementia." It's actually on Sunday, the twenty eighth at eight pm. And Martin King will feature in that, uh, talking about his own mother, Christina. And then they were going to put their broadcast, Finding Jack Charlton, which is uh, the documentary, at 9 uh, p.m. So it, it's difficult to watch, uh, I believe, and uh, heartbreaking at times. But I suppose it does show that over Jack's life, uh, it wasn't defined by dementia. And it shows all of the, the, the positive things and things he, were able, he was able to do. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's, an, it's an important uh, film, uh, Finding Jack Charlton, and it's on in Virgin Media 1 at 9, and it's, it's preceded by the uh, documentary called We Need to Talk About Dementia. I hope it's uh, it's going to be uh, kind of financially and in terms of awareness and anything else a very successful week for you, Pat. Uh, it's been lovely talking to you. So uh, 8 p.m. anyway, Sunday evening, the 28th. Um, those that documentary featuring the Martin King was the weather forecaster thing, and then That's finding right. Jack Carlton at, at 9 p.m. After that, they'll certainly make for riveting viewing. I'm sure. Thanks a million for joining us, Pat. Lovely talking to you. Thanks, Morris, for your support. You're very, very, very much. Ticker. Uh, and that was Pat McLaughlin, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. So um, if you're not listening to us here on Community Radio Kilkenny City on Sunday night, I think we can give you our blessing and our permission to uh, perhaps uh, dip in and watch those two shows uh, around dementia, the documentary featuring Martin King and his mother's story, and indeed then at 9pm the uh, documentary Finding Jack Charlton which uh, Pat was talking about there. About time we took another ad break here on Kilkenny today. We'll be back in a couple of minutes time with uh, Pat Neville, Communications Manager of Creelche. So do stay with us and we'll be back a couple of minutes just after these. We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. Join me, Tommy Dowd on Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 for City Sounds with hits from the 80s, 90s, 90s and beyond. 
here on 88.7 FM. How does your garden grow? If you have a gardening problem, or there's a needling question you have about a plant or a tree, why not contact our horticulturist, Kieran Walsh? Kieran answers your queries every Wednesday evening, just after 6 pm on the country road on Community Radio Kilkenny City. Please send your queries into us by texting 086 353 7782, telephoning 056 77 or you can write to us at Community Radio Kilkenny City, Hebron Road, Kilkenny. Kieran will do his best to answer all queries on the country road on 88.7 FM every Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. Des Murphy here to remind you of my Good Morning Kilkenny program Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. for two hours here on Community Radio, Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. So join me for seven decades of music, Ashley's favourite three, and on this day in music history, that's Tuesdays and Thursdays, Good Morning Kilkenny from 10 a.m. to 12 noon with me, Des Murphy. Kilkenny Business Today programme every Thursday evening with Fran Grinsel from 5 to 6. Talking local business, local stories with a personal touch. Success, failure, trauma and truth. Tune in to local people telling their experience of starting from scratch in the world of business and commerce. Fran Grinsel's Kilkenny Today business programme every Thursday from 5 only on Community Radio Kilkenny City where local matters. Play Community Radio Kilkenny City Spit the Pot monthly draw whenever you see the yellow boxes. Put two euros in the envelopes provided. Write your name and contact number on the envelope and drop the envelope in the yellow box. Be in it to win. The more envelopes you have in the yellow box, the better chance you have of winning. You can also get the envelopes from any volunteer of Community Radio Kilkenny City or at the radio station at 32 Hebron Industrial Estate, just off the Hebron Road. Be in it to win it. Monday, Monday, Monday. You're listening to Kilkenny Today with Morris O'Connor on Community Radio Kilkenny City, 88.7 FM. Welcome back uh, to today's Kilkenny Today to the last part of the show. Unfortunately, we've been having difficulty reaching Pat Neville, the communications manager, ironically, um, for Quilche, uh, given that today or this week is uh, National Tree Week and uh, we could, we've had the, uh, had... Um, a nice press release going with that, talking about uh, what they had planned for the, this week and this year and onwards. They're going, culture planning to donate 100,000 trees nationwide in uh, 2021, which is uh, which will be fascinating to hear about uh, in partnership with a charity called Crown and uh, something called the Easy Treesy Project, uh, which sounds like a fun um, a fun project name. And it's uh, I think the idea is that there will be a they're having a goal of planting a million trees one for every child in Ireland by 2023. So the trees are to be provided by um, by Quilche. Uh, so we would have been talking to Pat anyway um, about about that. Unfortunately, uh, we, we can't get hold of Pat and I'm sure we could have covered some other things with him as well besides. But we do have a couple of um, pieces from our colleagues in some of the other community radio stations around the country that brought to us, of course, through the auspices of CRAIL, the Association of Community Radio Stations, 
in Ireland. Uh, one of those pieces uh, is somewhat relevant to County Kilkenny, I mean, not, maybe not so much to the city because uh, as I'm sure a lot of people know we do have a big uh, meat processing plant down in Granny, down the south of the county and uh, meat processing plants uh, certainly in the last year have been featuring in the news sporadically around uh, large outbreaks of COVID-19 and uh, the uh, issues arising from as to how COVID-19 outbreaks are, why they're happening in those and how they can or cannot be controlled and workers' terms and conditions uh, come under the spotlight as well. But um, uh, Adrienne Murphy, uh, one of the uh, presenters on uh, Near FM in Dublin uh, on her Northside Today programme, was recently speaking to sip um, 2s uh, manufacturing division organiser, Greg Ennis. And sip 2 had been calling on the government to address recurring COVID-19 outbreaks in meat processing plants. So we could have a listen to that conversation for the next few minutes. Well, I suppose we are back here again, Adrian, and it's, it's, it's like Groundhog Day uh, for mm. workers in the meat industry yeah. because we're 12 months into this uh, pandemic, as you know, and when I last spoke to you, there have been some developments. We, we negotiated and agreed safety protocol, Meat Industry Ireland, and that underpinned and, and enhanced the HSC workplace guidelines. But the one thing we didn't get agreement on was the provision of sick pay. And out of the, you know, there's 15,500 workers in the meat industry, well over 3,000 workers have now contracted COVID. So about 23%, uh, almost a quarter, have contracted COVID uh, during the 12 months. So things haven't got any better. Uh, and nine out of 10 workers uh, do not have sick pay. So yes, you're right. They, we, we appeared at the Oireachtas in, in, in August and we got a fair hearing. And we got uh, 10 recommendations out, uh, a number of them, we won't have time to go into them all, but you mentioned some of them that are significant. One is sick pay provision for meat processing workers and other low-paid workers, that a task force will be established to examine the terms and conditions, that a review of the role of agencies in the industry, I think that's a very important one, because Germany, for example, has outlawed agencies supplying labour to the abattoirs and meat plants in Germany. So since the 1st of January in 2021, you must be a direct employee, which obviously puts greater responsibility on the employer. Uh, and uh, among other things, they mentioned that COVID-19 should be made a notifiable disease under the regulations implemented by the HSA. Currently, infectious diseases are not reportable to the HSA, which is mind-boggling. That seemed to have slipped off the regulations off the page in 2016, uh, which was quite convenient, in my opinion. So, look, uh, where we're at is, uh, you know, the, the most recent health production, uh, health protection surveillance centre report, the, the HPSC report, as it's known, uh, up to the 27th of February. So this is a HSE document, which showed us, you know, in, in, in the eighth week of this year, week eight, and February, there was 37 workplace outbreaks that week. But if we focus on the meat and poultry production uh, section, uh, there's currently today 34 open outbreaks within the meat industry. So, you know, these recommendations were, were issued in October, as you said, October 7th, uh, and they have been basically moved into other joint committees of the Enterprise Trade and Employment, for example, uh, and, and the Health Committee. So they're gathered in dusk on some committee desk while workers are continuing to contract COVID. Uh, and it's an appalling situation. And, and the point you make about sick pay is extremely important, uh, Adrian. And, and for your listeners, Adrian, just to say that if, if a worker uh, has to isolate or feels they have symptoms of COVID, they get the COVID-19 illness benefit, which is €350 Euro per week. If they've contracted COVID, that €350 would be paid for 10 weeks. But the issue is this in the meat industry. Most workers earn on or just above the minimum wage. There are some skilled workers who would obviously get what's known as peace rate or a bonus payment, which would bring them up around 500 a week. These workers simply cannot afford to isolate 
because they're down a third of their wages, 150 euro a week. And sometimes there's a choice between, do I go to work? I mightn't be feeling the best, but do I go to work and take the chance? Because if I don't, I won't be able to put bread on the table for my family and pay my rent, etc. So it's extremely uh, significant. So it's, it's not good enough for the likes of Leo Varadkar or the Tarnished uh, last December to say that we will have sick pay uh, on a statutory footing, occupational sick pay by the end of 2021. That's too little too late. It's okay for someone on over 100,000 a year to say that we do that. But when workers have to make a choice between losing a third of their wages every week for up to 10 weeks, that is a very serious situation to put those workers in. And while, you know, occupational sick pay will come on the agenda and the devil will be in the detail for sure, uh, I think an industry that has turnover in the billions with the government should be able to come up with something to bridge the gap between the 350 per week COVID-19 illness benefit and what these workers earn, which is around 450 to 500 a week. That would be doing something significant. When it came to cutting the minimum wage, you might remember that way back when the Troika were here, Adrian, uh, with the swipe of a pen, the government could cut the minimum wage overnight from 865 to 765. When it came to the uh, FEMPI, the Financial Emergency Measures in the Public Interest, they could cut Public, public workers, public service workers, terms and conditions, with the stroke of a pen overnight. But when it comes to doing something like putting statutory sick pay in place, we have to wait 15 months or longer? That tells me where this government is at. I'm like, if we're serious about this, we have, you know, in January, for example, we had over 2,000 workers from Brazil who came back into this country. These are essential workers. They go home uh, historically at Christmas, they have gone home. It's a tradition to visit their families and so on, and they come back in January. Uh, and, and these workers are coming back. We didn't have quarantine in place. Uh, and we still don't have it. I know it's been signed into law and all of that. There's yeah. contracts to be signed even now. We still don't have it. So this this, this government uh, is behind in its vaccination programme. It's way behind in its quarantine programme. And it's absolutely way, way behind when it comes to doing something to protect what they call, and rightly call, essential workers. Because meat is an important uh, food item, uh, as is others. And just to make this point, Denmark, for example, it will conclude its vaccination in June. It is the same size and similar population to Ireland. We'll be lucky to do it by the end of this year. Oh, will you stop? I'm looking at the, uh, it's 80,000 a week. I'm going, gosh, it could be four or five years later <laughs> by the time well, I, I, I come down on the list. I think it will ramp up, but like, let's be realistic about this. And I know there's issues with AstraZeneca and the delivery and all of that, but there was also issues with, with uh, GPs in the West of Ireland who didn't have syringes to put the vaccine into a year down the road, yeah. that's unforgivable. Yeah. So look, getting back to the, the, to the meat workers and, and, and low-paid workers in general, you know, an industry that turns that amount of money, surely they can bridge the gap between that 350 that the government is paying and what the employer is paying. Uh, uh, because that is that would be the litmus test to me that would persuade me that it isn't exploitation of workers. Because what's happening at the moment in the meat industry is bordering on exploitation. It is unacceptable that these key workers, essential workers, that essentiality needs to be recognised. And to have these recommendations issued since October 7th, uh, you know, we're almost six months in now, uh, uh, and uh, they're sitting there gathering dust, and workers are still contracting COVID, and we still have now even more dangerous situations. We don't even know whether the, the, you know, for example, the the P.1, the Brazilian variant, uh, we don't know how... Uh, the vaccines will react to that. We're not sure. We know there was three cases intercepted. I don't believe actually those cases were intercepted at all. I think those people came forward themselves when they were quarantining. There you go. That seems to have uh, cut off a little bit early on us. That was uh, Adrienne Murphy from Near FM in Dublin speaking to SIP2 Manufacturing Division organiser Greg Ennis.
uh, about uh, COVID and meat processing plants. So thanks to them for bringing, the, bringing us that. Uh, just before I let you go, uh, to repeat, uh, I didn't actually tell you, actually, if you wanted to contact the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, you can do that by alzheimer.ie, that's A-L-Z-H-E-I-M-E-R.ie, or indeed on their national helpline number 1-800-341-341. And thanks again to Pat McLaughlin, their CEO, for joining us. Also, thanks to Suzanne Rogers from Social Justice Ireland. And indeed to uh, the man running the sound desk for me today, Declan Gibbons, our station manager. Thanks indeed, Declan, for uh, doing me the favour of that. And to Anne Nolan for helping me produce the show. I'll be back with you again with another Kilkenny today on Friday. Uh, until then, take care and uh, I'll see you then. We are Community Radio Kilkenny City 88.7 FM. 